Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 207, and today's guest is Rob Simulcare, founder and CEO of Persona. What do these three things have in common? ESPN, the Olympics, and ABC News. Well, Rob was an on-air contributor for all three, which is really cool. And as you'll learn from our interview, he has a very unique background in the media industry. Not only was he on-air, but he also worked in business development and in the investment arm of media companies as well, which is very rare in terms of working on both sides of the equation. This well-rounded experience has now set him up to start his own company and entrepreneurial pursuit with Persona, a video Q&A marketplace where you can get personalized video answers or shout-outs from influencers and experts. Think of it like a business version of Cameo matched up with Quora. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice on storytelling and why it matters for entrepreneurs. Rob's background growing up and his passion for the media industry and how practicing law helped him get started, what it was like being an on-air personality, plus the details on his roles on the business side of the media industry, what led him down the path of starting Persona and why now is the ideal time for this startup, advice for diverse founders on raising capital, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can set up a user profile on VentureFizz? It is a feature that gives you access to personalized content, job seeker tools, and administrative features to manage your email subscriptions. To create a user profile and maximize your experience on VentureFizz, go to VentureFizz.com backslash register to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rob. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Keith. Great to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because we have a lot to cover. Like you're building a startup, you've got years and years and years of experience in media. So it's going to be a lot of a lot of fun to, to go through your background and hear what you're up to now. But uh, before we get into that, you know, a big piece of your career has focused around storytelling. And that's a big piece of entrepreneurship. If you're in a pitch meeting or if you're trying to get business from the new set of customers that have never heard of you and your product. So what advice would you have for that piece, the storytelling element that everyone has an interesting story to tell and how to wrap that together? I think that when you're starting a company, you have to, in the very first instance, think about what is your story, right? What is the the founding story, the conception story, your, your genesis, right? Um, that you're going to be able to tell someone because humans, for all of human history, there's 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 a few consistent threads and one of them is that humans are drawn in by stories. They, they, they pay attention in a different way when they're presented with a once upon a time. It immediately brings people in and they become more interested in whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is you're selling. It's just a fundamental part of, of, of humanity. And so when you think about things that have been really successful in the history of the world, right? There's almost always a good story somewhere behind them. And I think as a founder, you have to figure out what that story is. The, the best story, of course, is one that is A, true, right? That is, is actually what happened. You know, what was the thing that, that, that gave you the idea? You know, the, the moment of clarity that you realize this is a business I want to put into the world. Um, and then B, something that really ties in nicely to what it is you're trying to create so that people can really understand that and I, I have found that's a really uh, a really important part. And by the way, that story will over the course of a business. You know, you keep adding chapters. It keeps changing, right? You started out thinking 
I'm going to go create one thing. And then that story continues to evolve, you know, because businesses continue to evolve and change. And so there's no final chapter, really. You've got to continue to write your story as you, as you build a business. Yeah. And have that hook, something that pulls people in and connecting the dots of why you're doing what you're doing and why it matters. Uh, well, let's, let's rewind the clock. So talk about your background. Like where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? So I am a New York kid, uh, born in Manhattan. I was like the fourth generation of my family to be born on the island of Manhattan. Um, my, my, my last name, Similcare, is Danish and goes way back in my family. My great-great-grandfather was from Denmark, but um, you know, my great-grandfather was from the Virgin Islands and the family came to New York City in the 19, early 1900s and we've sort of been around there ever since. Uh, I grew up in, you know, New York and, and then New Jersey. I went to high school in, in New York City, uh, went on to Dartmouth, uh, went on to, to law school as well. And, the, you know, the story from my childhood that I actually think is, you know, in a way most relevant um, to where I am now is I, I tell this story a lot. My grandmother was originally from Coffeyville, Kansas. She came to New York City as a young woman, met my grandfather, who was a native you know, New York City guy from Harlem. And my grandmother had this sort of very farm-like, you know, you know, background. She was from a small town, Coffeyville, Kansas. And, you know, when she came to the city, she liked to keep things simple. She always had simple ways of, of, of sort of explaining things. And I remember she said to me a lot when I was a kid, I was very talkative, which isn't surprising given where I ended up going in, in life. Right. But she would always say to me, Robbie, I used to be called Robbie. She'd say, Robbie, I'm going to give you some advice. She said, if you're going to open your mouth, which I like to do a lot, um, the best thing you can do is ask someone a question, right? Because when you ask someone a question, what are you doing? You're A, you're telling them that you're interested in them, right? You're curious. You want to know something about them, which makes people feel good. And B, if you ask a question and then listen, there's actually a chance you might learn something. Right. Uh, and I remember that advice as a young kid, and it, it did really stick with me. And the things that I went on to do, becoming a lawyer, becoming a journalist, right, those are all things that involve asking questions. And so I, I came to realize, you know, in life that what I really enjoyed doing was asking a question and then sitting back and listening to the answer. So conversations like this one, actually, Keith, are quite unnatural for me because you're the one asking me the questions. I want to turn the tables on you, but I'll, I'll tolerate it because it's your podcast. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. Great advice. And yeah, like my background is recruiting and that, I think that's how I made the segue into podcasting because it was a natural transition of just asking someone a question and just shut up and let them talk. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just getting that story from the person. So now it is interesting because you, you know, studied uh, government philosophy at Dartmouth. You were anchor of the Dartmouth Sports Radio program, and then you went on to Harvard Law School. So, what were you were you always interested in the media side? Like, like what was going through your head that got you to you know ultimately at, at ESPN? Because you were a lawyer for a stretch too. I was, yeah. I mean, I was always interested in media from a very young kid. I was that ten-year-old kid. If you'd asked me at ten or twelve, like who my hero was, you know, it was, it was Dan Rather. It was Tom Brokaw. Like th those are the people who I was really interested in. And, um, you know, when, it, when I got to college, uh, I also was very passionate about sports as well. And so I 
got involved in sports broadcasting, sports and politics really are the two things that uh, from a subject matter point of view always interested me. So, you know, the government major philosophy and then the broadcasting. And I, you know, spent a lot of my time at Dartmouth um, in radio studios or booths of, you know, various basketball, hockey, football games. I had some great experiences during that period, got to, you know, do some really good interviews, got to cover the New Hampshire primary uh, at Dartmouth uh, back in, this is dating me, unfortunately, but, you know, early 90s, Bill Clinton, Governor Bill Clinton of Arkansas, um, got to, you know, interview him, got to cover that primary. So, you know, it was a, it was a great experience and it sort of, you know, hooked me to the, the whole world of media. Uh, law school was something that, you know, didn't, getting out of college, I was, you know, an intern at some TV stations, wasn't entirely sure where I was going to go, thought, you know, a legal background is a great background to have for anything, whether it's practicing law or media or a lot of other things. So when I, you know, had a chance to attend Harvard Law School, I couldn't, couldn't say no to that. Um, learned a lot uh, about the way our country works, the way our legal system works, and made a lot of great friends and then went on to practice law for a few years. But that pull to the media world never really let go of me. And so when an opportunity, an opportunity came to go back into that world with ESPN, um, I, I, I jumped at it. And how did that window open up for you? Like, how did you make that transition in, into media? Well, when I was in college, I was really focused on doing something in that world. And so I had a lot of internships. I had an internship at CBS Sports and ABC News. That's really what I spent my off terms at Dartmouth doing. And um, one of those internships at CBS Sports, there was a guy, I always, I like to name him when I'm telling my story, Len DeLuca was his name, is his name, still around. And uh, he had gone on from CBS to ESPN as a senior executive there. And he and I had stayed in touch. In fact, it was a political connection that really reconnected us. We both went to a fundraiser for uh, a politician, a guy by the name of Bill Bradley, who some folks might remember was a senator from New Jersey. He challenged Al Gore for the uh, Democratic nomination for president in 2000, um, former NBA player as well. So he was, a, he was a guy like me, you know, loved sports and loved politics. And he played in the NBA and then went on to become a senator from New Jersey. So Len and I both were involved in supporting his campaign and we reconnected through that. And then, you know, about a year later, an opportunity opened up at ESPN. They had just um, brought, basically they were in the midst of negotiating the rights to the NBA, uh, their first deal to broadcast NBA games pretty much ever. And they needed someone to come in and really run that relationship day to day. And so um, Len thought of me for that role. The legal background was actually helpful for that because the NBA was run by attorneys. The, the, the nickname for the NBA is nothing but attorneys because that's where that's where all the senior executives, they all had a legal background. David Stern at the time, Adam Silver, all, you know, most most of the top brass had law degrees. So they thought it would make sense for someone like me to, to be on ESPN side of that relationship. And it was great. Now, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's very uncommon for someone to be on the business side of the media world and also be on air. Like, how did you start becoming on air? And then how were you able to balance between the two? Or was it at one point you would just do the business side, then you'd flip to the on air side? It is extremely unusual. And the way it came about was based on all the stuff I'd done on the air at Dartmouth. I, I had that itch. I wanted to do that. Um, the Walt Disney Company, which ESPN is a part of, had a mentorship program. And I was nominated to be a mentee in that program. 
And the mentor that I was assigned was a guy named David Weston, who at the time was the president of ABC News. And so I would get together with David once a month and talk about what I was doing in my career. And I mentioned my interest in on-air stuff and David encouraged me to give it a try. And they had a fledgling digital network, which was kind of ahead of its time called ABC News Now. And so they were cranking out content on ABC News Now and I you know, didn't have a ton of viewers. So it was a pretty low risk way to get in front of the camera and start to do some stuff. And so I did that. And then um, a guy named Mark Shapiro, who was another mentor of mine at ESPN, said, you know what, you're pretty good at this. Why don't you do some on-air stuff at ESPN? So I started covering college football games and doing some studio work. So there was about a year and a half stretch where I was doing on-air exclusively for ABC News. But after that, for the most part, I, I did both at the same time. And it was very unusual. I did that at ESPN for several years. And then when I moved over to NBC, that was really the deal I had when I went in was that I would, I would, I would do regular on-air appearances. I would cover the Olympics, uh, things like that, while at the same time I had this executive role. So it was, um, you know, it was, it was great. It was a great, great to be able to play on both sides of that fence. You know, there, uh, it was unusual for the most part. It was, uh, you know, a good experience. There are occasionally times when the line between business and journalism gets a little tricky to figure out exactly, you know, what you are in a given situation. Are you an executive um, talking for the company or are you a journalist um, sort of talking as a journalist? So that, that line I had to negotiate at times, but for the most part, it was good. So what are your, your favorite memories of, uh, you know, on-air performances, things that you covered? Well, um, certainly on the on the positive side, um, the Olympics. I mean, I, I had the chance to be a part of NBC's coverage of the Olympics for three different games: um, London in 2012, Rio in 2016, Pyeongchang in, uh, it's in, uh, in Korea, the Winter Olympics in 2018. So, just being a part of the you know incredible broadcast and the the huge operation that the Olympics represent. For NBC, I mean, nobody nobody has ever done that better than NBC. And you know, the, the stories, the, the 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 sort of you know, just the storylines and and the, the the grandeur of the Olympics are something that I I really enjoyed being a part of um, for three different games for NBC. So that to me that was the highlight. Um, you know, on the on the other side, on the news side, you know, I I got to you know cover some really interesting stories but also had some really, you know, tough things to cover. When I was at ABC News, I covered, you know, a couple of school shootings, um, you know, pretty intimately. I covered one uh, that took place at an Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Some people might remember and, you know, was on the scene and had some conversations that were really, really tough with some some people who'd been affected by that tragic tragic event. and. Then uh, a little bit later on in my time at ABC News, I was on the air live uh, covering the Virginia Tech shooting uh, as it happens. And we, we had people on the phone with us, students and faculty who were minutes removed from you know, running out of rooms where shots were being fired. So some pretty intense stuff. Um, and and that's, you know, that's what the news business can be. You know, it's, 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 there, there are some difficult things that happen in the world and that's the job of a, a news journalist to to be in there and tell those stories. It's 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 quite rewarding, but in the moment, it's very very intense. I mean, I think that's what's so fascinating about your career: the fact that you had this business side, but also 
know, is not just sports, it was, you know, the news. And so it's just, you've done so many different things, which is just, uh, I think, so cool and unique for other people to understand that you can do so many different things if you want. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's, you know, I think I've been lucky. I've had some, some really supportive people um, over the years. You know, I don't always recommend it. It can, it it can be challenging. There are, there are definitely um, positives and negatives to doing a lot of different things. Right. But I, I, you know, for me and my, the kind of person I am and my personality, it's, it's been great. So I've, I've, I've enjoyed it, but um, I, I wouldn't always say you should try it at home. <laughs> so what's a, what, what's that moment like when you're sitting at a news desk or, you know, the ESPN desk and the on-air light goes on, on the camera, or whatever, is it like, do you just get used to it and the nerves don't creep in or is it just always have those initial nerves? It's invigorating. It's really invigorating. It, there are definitely nerves depending on how often you've done it. You know, if I, if I got thrown in the studio right now and the light was about to go on, I'd probably get a little bit more, more nervous because I haven't done it in a little while. Right. But you, it's sort of like riding a bike, you, you pick it up. And I think what I love most about it is, you know, in this world that we're living in now, right, we're all pulled in so many directions. We're distracted by so many things. If I weren't on this podcast talking to you right now, I would probably be doing three or four things at once. I'd probably be writing an email, um, getting a text, maybe on a Zoom call, um, maybe listening to something in the background. Like I'd be doing multiple things at one time because that's the way our attention is now stretched. When you are on the air, live, talking to an audience, you are completely focused mm-hmm. on that task. You know, it's it's like other things that you might do in life that require real focus. And I think that humans are best in those moments where all of their brain's focus is really lasered in on one thing. Mm-hmm. I, I know that we've all had to become multitaskers because of the way that our information society has evolved. But I still think the fundamental nature of people and humans and the way our brains work is that we're at our best when we're really focused on one thing at one moment. And that's something that I, you get to experience when you're, you know, live on the air, like we are right now. Um, So I do, I I do love that element of, of just really being focused on the task at hand. Now, the other interesting thing in the, media world. So you also worked as part of NBC's sport ventures and Comcast ventures. So that was, you know, looking to invest into venture fundable businesses. Yeah. So that was really my job at NBC sports on the business side. I was tasked with coming up with new, new lines of business for NBC sports. You know, what are the, what are the areas that are growing that we as a sports group should be in? Should we be either operating or investing in businesses, you know, on a going forward basis. So I spent a lot of time looking at, you know, different kinds of businesses, things like esports or, you know, youth sports technology and software companies. We ended up acquiring a company called Sports Engine, which is the digital hub uh, that serves a lot of youth sports leagues, you know, soccer and baseball and softball leagues, um, uh, you know, esports, which was a hot area. And then in the latter time, when I was there, um, sports betting. Um, and, and, and that whole world, which was really starting to emerge and is still very much emerging around the country. And I'm, I'm involved in that now myself. Uh, the only other thing I do besides persona is some volunteer work I do for the state of Connecticut on that. So, you know, it's, it's, it was always about what's the next thing. And the, and the work with Comcast Ventures was similar. Um, that was, a, you know, the dedicated venture fund of Comcast. And so we spent time looking at 
whether it was content businesses, technology businesses, um, gaming, esports, you know, tech um, across the sports ecosystem, production technology. Spent a lot of time looking at different businesses that you know seem like they could be part of the 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 the, the future of sports, you know, as a business, as an industry. And I got to learn a lot. And I think the main thing that did for me, really, Kevin or Keith, was um was really giving me a chance to get a sense of startups, right? What do what do uh, what is a founder? What, how does a founder have to think? You know, what are what 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 is what is the life of a founder? And you know, being on the other side of those pitches, you know, where you had people coming and pitching me for their businesses, I get to learn a lot about pitches, about what makes a good pitch, what doesn't, what are investors looking for, what was I looking for as an investor in different types of businesses. So I learned a lot about just the startup the startup ecosystem in that role. Well, this is a perfect segue now. So like you spent all these years on air in the business side of media, and then you had the segue of looking into, you know, potentially investing into companies for uh, NBC and Comcast Ventures. So what led you down the path of taking that own leap of faith of you starting your own company and, and persona? So I think I definitely caught the bug to some degree of startups, right? From just having the amount of interaction I had with founders. I, I have a huge amount of admiration and respect for founders in anything, right? In any industry, whether it's a, a venture-backed business or somebody who starts a small business on Main Street in you know, their town, it takes a tremendous amount of, of courage and belief in yourself um, to ever put yourself out there and start a business and get out from you know, whatever the safety that you may have, or in some cases, you may not have that safety. Um, but for people who do have the safety of a corporation or something like that, it's a it's a big leap. I think, you know, so that, that the, 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 just the ethos of being a founder and the process was something that I was attracted to. And then what led to persona in particular was very much tied to the on-air work that I did. So I, you know, in, in all the time I spent doing on-air work, the thing that I enjoyed by far was this type of interaction, the interview. I loved sitting down and having conversations. And as I said before, I loved asking questions. Um, I found that the process of getting to know a person or learning about a topic through question and answer conversations was enjoyable for me. And I also felt it was the kind of content I created that was most enjoyable to the audiences that I served. And the thing that I really like, I think the compliment that I got the most out of, if anyone ever said, gave me a compliment from my on-air work was, that was a great interview. You know, you, you had a great conversation with that person. And I know Keith, you can appreciate that from your podcast, right? People, there's, there's a certain satisfaction that you get from, you know, drawing someone out and, and getting really good answers from them. I, I always say, you know, in, in everybody in their business life or as a student, you know, when you ask a question and the person you ask say, oh, you know, that's a really good question. I always think that's a great compliment to receive from someone because when you when when someone says you ask them a good question, they're really complimenting your your insight, your curiosity, um, the fact that you asked them something maybe in a way that no one had ever asked them before, or that made them think differently about themselves, about what they were doing, right, in, in, in a way that was different than anyone had done before. And that's really that's a it's an achievement to do that, to ask a really good question. And, and then something something hopefully good comes with the answer that, that from, a, from a good question. 
So uh, persona. So talk about the original concept and then, you know, talk about where it is today. Cause I'm sure it's never a linear path of we're going to do X and it ends up being X. It's always a little bit twist and turns to get there. Yeah. You're so right about that. Um, so the original concept for persona was an interview platform. I knew that I wanted to create a platform that was a video content hub for interview based content. Right. And the initial germ of the idea for persona actually came, I talked about my grandmother earlier in this interview, but there's a story about my grandfather. My grandfather died in the year 2000. And then about five years ago, a relative of mine found a, an old photograph of him. His name was Carl Semmelcare, um, found this in his attic and I and sent it around to all of us digitally. And it was a, in a photograph when he was like 25 years old, he was about to get married to my grandmother. And I'd never seen a photo of him from those days. And I was really riveted by this photograph. And it made me realize like, wow, I really wish that I could like, you know, hear from him. I, I wish I could hear what he was doing and where he was going. And I wish I could, I wish someone had interviewed him. I wish this were a piece of video where he said something about what was going on. How great would that be? And then I realized, gosh, you know, I never really sat down and interviewed him at all during his life. So I wished I had done that. And so the original idea was I wanted to create a platform for interviews, maybe family interviews, maybe any sort of interview content that anyone wanted to create. And so we just created a, uh, and then this was while I was still at NBC, I was doing this on the side. I created a, an app that was like, uh, hey, interview your parents, interview your, your, your siblings, whatever, you know, and, and put it down in this app and have, it, have a place to sort of have it live. That was sort of the very early version of it. And I sort of did some of that on the side when I was still at NBC. Um, love that idea. It, you know, the, the issue on that was hard to get people to do it, right? It was just hard to actually get people to sit down and do it. Right. Theoretically, it sounds great. The number of people who would actually do that, you know, and, 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 and go through that, that process, I found was just, it was just harder to get people to do it than I thought, right? So we then started to also populate the platform with a little bit, just to have content so that there was something there. We just started populating with other interviews, right? We, we turned it into a, and this is when I left NBC, we actually really put our heads down and, and, and by we, I mean me and a co-founder I had at the time, started to really focus on let's build up a reservoir of content on the platform. And so we, it became a news aggregator, but all focused on the format of the interview where you could follow topics, you could follow the election, you could follow what was going on with COVID or um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement last year, all through conversations. And we would pick out you know, the, the best 20 or so conversations of the day, every day, the things that we thought were most relevant to what was going on in the world that day, organize it by topic and put it out there. So it was almost like if you're familiar with Flipboard or some other aggregation uh, you know, businesses, we were really aggregating interview content in a way that was pretty unique, um, different. We got some, you know, got, got users and pretty good feedback on that. And so that was what Persona was for most of 2020. And the thinking throughout 2020 was this is a really interesting time in the world. We've got this election. We've got all this stuff happening. We didn't even know when we started this that there'd be COVID, that there'd be, you know, all these other sort of, you know, earth shattering things that would happen in 2020. And so that was really how we, we presented Persona to the world throughout most of 2020. Um, and, and, and sort of while that was going on, spent some time thinking about what would, what would come next. All right. So what are you up to now? What, what is Persona today? 
So toward the tail end of 2020, you know, we we spent a lot of time looking at the, the ecosystem, and I, you know, loved what we what we have built, but I had to really get serious about business model, right? And what what is the in in this world today, you basically have a couple of choices. If you if you have a, a, any sort of a media platform, you have a choice of being ad supported and and going down that road. That is increasingly a difficult road to go down, um, given the domination of the advertising marketplace um, of of platforms like Facebook and Google and a handful of others. Unless you see explosive growth from a user point of view, um, you're going to be challenged to be ad supported. Uh, you know, your other option, of course, is to live on other platforms, right? My goal was always to build a platform um, as opposed to building a brand that would live on other platforms. It would live on YouTube or live on Instagram or places like that. You can do that and then just reap the benefits of whatever ad sales, you know, YouTube can drum up for you for yourself. But my goal was always to build a platform. So that was one route. The other route is to have some sort of a direct consumer revenue model, whether it's a subscription business or some other form of, of you know, paid, you know, customer interaction. And so I spent a lot of time in 2020 thinking about that and looking at models out there and what was working. It was hard not to see the success of Cameo in 2020, right? They had this incredible um, breakthrough year in part aided by what was going on with COVID. You had, they had a marketplace that was being helped by COVID because they have on one hand celebrities, many of whom would normally be out working, shooting shows or whatever, but were all stuck inside. And on the other hand, they had people stuck inside who couldn't go shopping for gifts or just were struggling for ways to entertain themselves, right? And so they had this opportunity to go and book these shout outs, right, from celebrities. And both sides of the market were really ready for that because they had nothing else to do. And they took off. They had an incredible year in 2020. And so I looked at that and, and I thought, we'd already built some tools that were similar to uh, that in terms of you know, asynchronous video interaction. But I wanted to, I looked at it and said, how can we do something in that realm, but that is really more consistent with our DNA, right? And, and my DNA was, again, it went back to the question, it went back to a question and an answer. That's sort of the fundamental nature of what I wanted to build. And I, you know, I, I thought, you know, as much as Cameo is great, no one's really learning anything on Cameo. It's just constant, you know, happy birthday and, you know, congratulations. And it's, it's a gift site. What they do is gifts. And so I really thought about, could we create a platform where, yes, people are paying for access to, to other people, to experts or to influencers or thought leaders, but the purpose is maybe a, a little bit less pure entertainment and a little bit more actual information, right? To, to learn something. And so that was what I, I saw as an opportunity was essentially to combine the, the functionality of what Cameo created with the, the, the actual purpose of what a platform like maybe Quora or Masterclass or platforms like that do, right? Which is you're engaging because you want to learn something, you want information about something. And so that's what we, in late 2020, decided we were going to launch as sort of version 2.0 of Persona, which just came out about a week ago. And it's, a, it's essentially a question and answer marketplace, video-based, um, where you, 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 you find people organized by topic and you ask them questions. 
Well, the uh, the timing is perfect. I agree because the success of Cameo, like I actually did just purchase my first Cameo and it was great. And the video I got back was amazing. And it's still something that is going to be gifted later this, this month, uh, which I'm excited to deliver that. But when I saw your site immediately, I got it. I'm like, ah, this is like a business version of Cameo or a live video version of Quora. So that I think you've you're riding the coattails of what their success has translated to. And uh, I think there's a massive opportunity. Like I would absolutely pay to talk to somebody on a specific topic, an idea, advice. Um, it just makes a lot of sense. It's just one of those areas that I think is ripe for, you know, the, the time is now, like the market is ready for something like this now. Like I've seen people try this before, but it wasn't ready. But now I think the timing is right. Sometimes I think when you when you want to start a business, you're right, like the market has to be ready for the idea. And sometimes another company will come along and pave, you know, sort of take out the machete and hack that trail in the woods that you weren't quite able or ready to hack, right? And I think Cameo has done that for the idea of video marketplaces, right? Where you're paying for this sort of interaction with other people via video. And they, they, they did that and they were very successful and continue to be, and they've, they've sort of picked their lane, right? Their lane is, their lane is fun. Their lane is entertainment. Their lane is primarily gifts. And I, and that's a great place for them to be. And by the way, if they're listening, I'm sure they've got ideas to go into all kinds of different realms as well. So, you know, they may hear this and say, oh, we're planning on doing that. I don't know, maybe so. But I think their brand is very clearly identified with that reality show star sort of, you know, I hate to say a C and D list celebrity, let's just call it what it is, right? And the fun that comes from that. Whereas I think there's there's room upstream from that, if you will, that's more knowledge and information based, like a Quora or, you know, the other type of business that I talk about a lot is the expert network, um, the, the GLGs of the world or other companies like Alpha Sites. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I get called and, and sometimes we'll do a, an hour talk with somebody uh, about, you know, someone wants to talk to someone about media or sports or sports betting. And so I'll say, sure, I'll spend, you know, an hour talking to somebody for, you know, X amount of money. And it's, it's that same concept of a marketplace around people and knowledge. And I think that's, that's the, that's the, I think the, the, the white space, um, the blue sky that I think exists for this type of platform. That's smart. Yeah. Cause that's, that's a different differentiator because sending a birthday message with a couple points of interest about a person is one thing to spit out for the celebrity, but for what you're providing is more of that expertise. And as the consumer, you want to have that one-to-one -one interaction because if they sent reply back with something that has nothing to do with what the question was targeting, it would be disappointment. So to have that one-on-one -on -one interaction, I think is very powerful. That's, right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I, it's again, our, our tagline is the place for conversation, right? And so uh, a true conversation, you know, you, you, you want to be contemporaneous. You want to be able to, to follow up and ask another question. And so, you know, we, the, the tools are available. It's not, um, not, a, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be there with that product pretty soon. We're, we're really following in a lot of ways, the, the product roadmap of Cameo, they started out with just the asynchronous and then they, they went to live as well. So we're, we're, we're on that path and we expect to be out with that pretty soon. So what's been the biggest lesson learned since starting a company? Yeah, so I think you, you sort of mentioned it um, earlier, which is, and, and I've, I've used this 
phrase when it comes to, you know, writing, I, I love to write. And I, I always say, there's no such thing as good writing. There's just good editing, right? The, the, in other words, the first time that you sit down and write whatever it is that you think your, your story is or your business plan is or whatever it is, is close to guaranteed not to being correct, right? It's, it's going to have some elements of what you'll ultimately be doing, but there are going to have to be edits and changes and pivots along the way. And almost every business goes through this with very few exceptions. I mean, I think, I think Jeff Bezos is probably one of the few exceptions, right? He seemed to have his roadmap in mind from day one, right? I'm going to sell books and then I'm going to go on to start selling everything, right? And that, that's exactly how it played out with it in the case of Amazon. But not too many businesses go from point A to point B on quite that straight line. Um, of course, you, you'd like to make it as straight as you can because the more twists and turns, the more time it takes, and frankly, the more capital it takes. So the more straight your line can be, the better. But for the most part, you know, you've got to be you got to be open to editing. You got to be open to changing. Um, and, and I think the other thing that I'm that I would advise people on, especially in this day and age, it, with where the the digital economy now is, I think the the sooner you have a sense of what your revenue is going to be and how you're going to get to that revenue as quickly as you possibly can, the better. I think it's it while it can still be done and you still see it happening in Silicon Valley, you see platforms like Clubhouse, right, come out. I mean, it's still happening. Clubhouse is uh, now over a billion dollar valuation with zero revenue, right? So it still happens. But I think it's just harder and harder to, to get away with that path. Um, and it's, I think it's really hard if you are not already one of these sort of inside baseball Silicon Valley people. I think you can get away with some of that if you're like somebody who, oh, you're in the Valley and everybody knows you. And, oh, of course, you know, so-and-so, yeah, I'll definitely invest in that guy's you know, thing. Whatever he does is guaranteed to be a winner, right? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I think certain people can get away with that more than other people can. And I think if you're not in that world already, if you're, if you're coming from outside the Valley, if you're not that sort of prototypical 20 something certain type of person who founds a business, you're less likely to, to, be, to be given that kind of bandwidth to, to, to roll with a, an, a, a business plan that is not laser focused on revenue from pretty early on. Well, another topic that's super, super important is we need more diverse founders raising venture funding to build companies. What advice would you have for diverse founders on raising capital? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And it is still not easy um, for people. It you know, goes back to what I was saying, right? There are certain people who can fall out of bed and raise $5 million for an idea um, based on who they are, where they come from, what their sort of set of connections is. And not too many of those people, you know, generally are, you know, what you'd call diverse, you know, look like me, African-American, you know, male. Um, so, or, and certainly not many of them are female, right? A lot, it's, it, it's, it's very challenging for, for female founders as well. And so I think, you know, it does go back partly to what I was saying, which is, I think you have to, as a diverse founder, it's helpful to be even that much more clear on all the different metrics that investors are looking for, um, your market, the size of your market your revenue plan, um, things like that. You're, you're going to be held to account, I think, 
Um, you know, everybody is, all founders are, but I think you need to have your ducks as a diverse founder probably even more in a row, because I think at the end of the day, I do think there's a, a risk tolerance that people are willing to take on a little bit more risk with a founder who looks and feels to them like founders they've taken risk on before and been successful or, or founders they've seen have success before, right? When, when you know, you're an investor and you've invested in you know, a certain type of person repeatedly and some of those have turned out well, of course, not all of them do, they all do these failures too, but there's a comfort level with that versus maybe, oh, this is a little bit different. I don't have maybe the same built-in comfort level investing in this type of founder. So I think the risk tolerance is a little bit lower. And so I think you've gotta, you've gotta deal with that by, by lowering the perceived risk by being on the ball, organized, have a game plan, have a great team, and have a have a clear path to revenue that's going to allay some of those fears about risk. I, I don't think there's really any getting around that until there are more and more success stories um, with diverse founders that I think then as that happens, the, that perceived risk will change. I think people will then become more willing to take risk with, with diverse founders. So Part of it is just built into the ecosystem of uh, the VC community and, and, and the way they see risk versus reward. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it, it's going to take time and it's going to take founders who are willing to, you know, go through the, the ups and downs and have no set a lot um, to get through and, and get to where they want to go. Yeah, well, I'm hoping there's change there because it, at least there seems to be awareness that their ratios are so skewed. And like, I mean, yeah. at least that's a starting point. I'm not saying that's, we're going to get to the solution. There's a lot of work that needs to. It is. It's a really important starting point. You know, you, you, you can't solve a problem until you recognize that there is a problem. Right. And that recognition is definitely out there. Uh, it's definitely a first step, but it's, you know, it's, it's a battle. I just hope that the focus isn't short term. I hope that you know, it doesn't become a 2020 into 2021 story. Yeah. And, you know, you look up in two years and everybody's sort of back to business as usual. You know, there's, there's a history of some of that happening when it comes to issues of inclusion and diversity. And uh, I hope that doesn't happen in this case. Yeah. A thousand percent agree. So what, uh, what are three apps that you can't live without? Obviously a persona not being one of them. Uh, yes, I remember you were going to ask me this question. So I, I'd say, um, gosh, the apps that I go on most often that I have to have my phone, I'm going to have to be honest, the New York Times, um, I, you know, I've been on that thing on a pretty regular, I'm trying to be on it less now, um, you know, after the election and the inauguration, I'm trying to like pull back a little from the news consumption because it's been so intense uh, in the last couple of years. And I'm hopeful that we're going into a somewhat calmer period. So uh, that's definitely one of them. Um, I have two dogs who I love, so I'm constantly going on and buying, you know, pet supplies and things like that. So I'm a, I'm a fan of Chewy, which is a great, you know, direct to consumer business. And I'm, I'm really, it's interesting to me how certain businesses, you know, as much, as much as Amazon has dominated the uh, retail, right. You can still carve those niches out when it comes to e-commerce around, you know, an area like pet food and supplies and Chewy has, done such a great job with that and owning that very particular space by super serving people, you know, who, who, you know, love their pets and animals and things like that. So that's definitely 
another one. And then, gosh, I guess it's boring if I say Slack. That's probably the way. If I look at the ones I open the most, Slack is probably the, the number one app on my phone because I'm constantly, you know, pinging, you know, my team or talking to people about different things. Not that much fun, but, you know, certainly I think any entrepreneur is, you know, Slack is never too far from their, uh, from their, their open screen. It is, it is definitely a common one. How about some uh, good book or podcast recommendations? Well, I'm looking forward to being a regular consumer of your podcast going forward. I think this is great and love, love hearing about founders and folks like that. Um, you know, a book I read recently, which I loved, was uh, Trevor Noah. Uh, if you haven't read Trevor Noah's biography, um, Born a Crime, it's amazing. He, he tells a, just a tremendous story about growing up in South Africa and, you know, what it was like, you know, he grew up, you know, as a child in the sort of the waning days of apartheid and, uh, you know, what he went through, his personal family and his relationship with his mother. And it's just, it's very inspiring to see somebody come from where he was and the challenges he went through to be where he is today. Um, and I really recommend the audio book, actually. Someone who loves loves storytelling, right? I mean, to hear a guy like Trevor Noah, who's such a great presence, narrate his story um, on, I, on Audible. And by the way, that's another one of my favorite apps, Audible. Lo- love the audio format. So I, I really recommend that. It's, it's probably the book I've enjoyed the most in the last year or so. Um, on the podcast front, you know, I, I, I dip in and out of a lot. I am, I, I am a news junkie for sure. So, you know, Pod Save America was definitely, you know, at the top of my list for quite a while. I was, I was riveted um, by those, the former Obama speechwriters and, uh, you know, the, the, the take they had. It's, interesting, it's going to be interesting to see how a lot of podcasts and media in general that was so focused on, you know, the, the world around Donald Trump, right, whether it was pro or anti, how these these folks adjust to like the post-Trump world. It's, I think there's a bit of a crisis going on in a lot of media right now, trying to like readjust to this era of normalcy right. um, or pre- some normalcy, right? A sort of a relatively boring day-to-day, you know, scene in Washington. So it'll be interesting how podcasts like that and others adjust to the post-Trump landscape. What do you like to do outside of work? Obviously you're super busy building a company, but what, what else do you like to do? I've got two little girls, um, so I, I, I really, you know, try to center the rest of my time around them and spending time with them. Uh, you know, coach my daughter's youth softball team. Um, you know, work with my my youngest daughter on you know whether it's schoolwork or just hanging out. I mean, for me, it's it's you know any moment I'm not working, uh, you know, it's either hanging out with the girls or working out. You know, I've, I've I've I'm a runner. I've run a couple of marathons. I've uh, it's been a while. Probably won't be doing any one of those anytime soon. But um, you know, yoga, playing tennis this winter. You know, because I just had to find a way to be outside. I've 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 taken up paddle tennis as like my new passion. It's it's just a great way to be competitive, be outside. It's safe, you know, to to be you know playing a game with folks outside. So I just love to to be competitive, to play something, and really to be outside. And I'm, I'm you know nowadays it's kind of essential. You kind of have to be outside. If you want to see other people, you know, I've got friends who we try to socialize around a, an open fire, fire pit, that kind of thing, just just to see other people. It's uh, it's been a it's just been a really challenging time for a lot of people, and uh, you know, I, I hope people find ways to connect, including with Persona, because that you know that's really what we're trying to build is a way to connect. Yeah, no, I I think it's a great idea, and so it uh, sounds like you're out there fundraising for the. 
for the business now? Yeah. So, you know, fundraising is one of those things that I think every founder, it's, it's a fundamental part of being a founder. Um, I think it's probably hard to find a lot of founders who would claim to enjoy it. Um, it's not something I would say is like the most fun, but I am comfortable doing it. I have done it. I've been on the other side of the table. So I, I, I certainly know the process, you know, raised a, a, a round back in 2019 and have been very sort of cash efficient with that. And so now it's time to go out and raise a, a you know, sort of what I would call really a proper seed round. We're going to go out, um, you know, pretty much conversations have started, but we're, we'll be looking to raise, you know, something in the neighborhood of, you know, two to 3 million, you know, ish uh, on a seed round. And that process is kicking off right now. Very cool. Well, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, you know, all the different stops through your career, the great work you're doing with Persona, which I think, you know, the, the time is now for that type of, uh, type of app experience and uh, obviously all the great advice for others to follow. Thank you so much, Keith. I really appreciate you taking the time and your interest in it and uh, look forward to following along with different guests you have on the podcast, but thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.